sorry, to Psalm 100. As you're turning there, let me mention that in uh, 21st century, um, more and more secular America, there's not a lot of actual giving thanks during Thanksgiving. But that's not the way it's always been. America has a rich history of um, national days of thanksgiving from the thanksgiving feast of the pilgrims at Plymouth in Massachusetts in November 1621 through the colonial period, the early days of the United States after the ratification of the Constitution, and including an unbroken chain of presidential thanksgiving proclamations from Abraham Lincoln to today, and also including the national holiday, which became an official national holiday in 1941 under, under FDR. And an example of that rich heritage is George Washington's presidential Thanksgiving proclamation from October 3rd, 1789. And uh, this will sound familiar to you if you've been with us a while. Um, I, I think I rotate uh, every Thanksgiving between George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Ronald Reagan for their Thanksgiving Day proclamations. So uh, this is George Washington. This is a, a, uh, an excerpt from George Washington's presidential Thanksgiving proclamation from 1789. So he wrote, Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God. Then he goes on to list a bunch of those signal favors of Almighty God. Then he says, Now therefore I do recommend and assign Thursday the 26th day of November next to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks. That, written by the first president and recommended by the first congress, who were very familiar with our Constitution and the First Amendment, and yet they said that. My, how the mighty have fallen. But where did the American idea of thanksgiving come from? Well, the, the Bible, of course. Brother Alex read um, from Psalm 92, which, is, which begins by saying, it is, get, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, 
And uh, there are many other portions of Scripture that have a Thanksgiving theme about them. But this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 100. And you'll notice that in Psalm 100, the uh, heading that says a psalm for giving thanks, that's actually part of the inspired text. And so here we have a whole psalm that is for Thanksgiving. So it's very appropriate to look at Psalm 100 on the Lord's Day before our national day of Thanksgiving and just listen to what it has to say. So so a psalm for giving thanks. That's our theme for today. And uh, the first thing that we see here besides the heading in Psalm 100 is a call to joyful worship. A call to joyful worship. So it's a psalm for giving thanks and it begins, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. This is the language of worship. And that's what the writer of Psalm 100 has in mind. It's a scene of worship. And so right away we're struck with some things here. Worship is about making a joyful noise to the Lord. Worship is about coming into his presence with singing and serving the Lord with gladness. And so that sets worship apart from what we're used to in our culture in terms of entertainment. Worshiping the Lord is very different than, say, going to a theater. When you, when you go to a theater to see a movie, you sit quietly, unless you're with a bunch of people who talk annoyingly during the movie. But usually you go to the movie and you're, you sit quietly and you passively Take in the movie. That's not biblical worship. If we were to compare worship to something, worship is more analogous to a sporting event where the crowd takes an active role in the contest and there's such a thing as home field advantage because of the participation of the crowd. That's more comparable to biblical worship than going to a theater. There's congregational participation where we all have a part to play. We're supposed to be active. We're not supposed to be passive. And it's not always supposed to be so quiet that you can hear a pin drop. Thank you. (laughs) Well done. No promptings even. So that's this scene of worship. And you'll notice also that in these opening verses, this call to joyful worship, that it's not just the covenant community that's involved, whether it's Old Testament Israel or the church under the new covenant that's called to worship the Lord. It's all the earth at the end of verse one And even George Washington acknowledged that. Whereas it is the duty of 
all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, etc., etc. The, the God of the Bible is not just the God of the Jews in the Old Covenant and then Christians under the New Covenant. The God of the Bible is the God of all of the earth. He's the God of all creation. He's the maker of heaven and earth and the creator of all humanity. And so uh, all of us, everyone without exception, no matter where we're from, no matter where we live, no matter what we look like, no matter what language we speak, we are all called to come and make a joyful noise to the Lord. That's because of the God the God of the Bible is the creator and sovereign ruler over all people everywhere and in all times. And each one of us has been created in the image of God for the express purpose of knowing him, loving him, serving him, worshiping him. That's why we were created. Psalm 66 opens with these words. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Sing to him glorious praise. And again, this is directed to all the earth. And also you'll notice that uh, thanksgiving and singing, which are mentioned uh, in this psalm, it's a psalm for giving thanks, and it begins with this call to making a joyful noise uh, and coming into his presence with singing. Singing and thanksgiving go hand in hand. So in Psalm 95 and verse 2, let us come into, into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And so when we come to worship the Lord, we don't come kicking and screaming. We, we don't come tired and worn out and uh, ready to fall asleep and just barely mumbling along as the music team is entertaining us. They're not entertaining us. They're helping us. They're augmenting our singing, but uh, it's an opportunity for us to sing to the Lord and to express our thanksgiving, our gladness through our singing. We have an active role to play. So there's this call to joyful worship. Then Psalm 100 moves on in verse 3 to tell us about the reason to worship. The reason to worship, and in a nutshell, it's, it's because of who God is and who we are. So notice that in verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. That little word know is very important. Because while worship should be filled with 
shouts of joy and giving of thanks and singing praises to God, the, it's also not supposed to be a, a chaotic affair in which people's minds are turned off. In a lot of contexts, uh, it seems that the purpose of what they call worship is really to work people into a sort of emotional trance. But that's not worship in the Bible either. The worship um, that's prescribed by the Bible comes from the mind. It engages the mind. Because after all, we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And so biblical worship that's filled with thanksgiving, that expresses thanksgiving, originates with the knowledge of who God is. And here the writer of Psalm 100 is using God's covenant name. That's why in your Bible, uh, I assume like mine, the word Lord there uh, is spelled with small caps. L is large cap and then O-R-D, small caps. Yes? Whenever that takes place in our English Bibles, it means the word Lord, printed that way, is translating the, the untranslatable name of God that we nevertheless try to translate or pronounce Yahweh or Jehovah. And that name means that God is the self-existent, sovereign, covenant-keeping Lord of heaven and earth. And so literally, the beginning of verse 3 there says, know that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is God. And the understanding is alone. There is no other. Because if you think about it, all that is bound up in that name Jehovah, Yahweh, self-existence, sovereignty, covenant-keeping faithfulness, it means there's not room in the universe for more than one of them. Because if he's self-existent, sovereign, that means nobody can get in his way. He depends on no one. No one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That means there can't be one God in one corner of the universe and another God in another corner of the universe, and they're competing with each other. If that's so, then those two gods are less than the God of the Bible. And because he is the covenant-keeping God, that means that whatever he promises, he will do. Nothing is going to stop him. Nothing is going to frustrate his purposes. And so, it's been said before that if there's the tiniest sub-molecular particle in the furthest reaches of the universe that is not under God's sovereign control, then none of his promises can be trusted. 
Because something could happen that could cause the word of God to fail. But that will never happen because Yahweh, he is God. And that underlies our thanksgiving. And by the way, aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that our God is not the God who uh, feeble, sinful, foolish men invent? Our God does not depend on us. He needs nothing. He's eternal and all-powerful and all-knowing. We should be thankful that that is the Lord that we worship. And um, the psalmist goes on to say that our relationship with God is based on the fundamental reality of creation. So the first part of verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God. And then it is he who made us. And some versions say, and we are his other versions say, and not we ourselves. And the Hebrew can be translated either way. So, it is he who made us, and therefore not we ourselves. We did not create ourselves. But I'm going to go with the ESV here. It is he who made us, and we are his. So, he's our maker. He's our creator. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, him, male and female, he created them. That's us. And the image of God that is in us, that is a part of each one of us, the, the fundamental purpose of the image of God in us is to know God, is to worship God, is to give thanksgiving to him. But the fact that God made us means that we belong to him. He's our maker. We are his creation. And that's what the psalmist says. It is he who made us and we are his. There's a sense of belonging. We belong to God because of creation. And that's true of everyone. Because God has created everyone. And so we all belong to God because of creation. But this is especially true about the redeemed. And so if you would keep your finger here in Psalm 100 and turn with me to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, one of the major prophets. He's just before Jeremiah in the Old Testament. If you have to use your table of contents, don't worry about it. We won't laugh, but we will talk about you later. Isaiah 43, in verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, Yahweh, He who created you, O Jacob. And at this point, the man, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, is long gone. Jacob or uh, Israel 
is, is representative of the covenant community. He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, God says, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And so the covenant community, in the case of Israel, they were redeemed by God's outstretched arm as he delivered them out of bondage to slavery in Egypt. So Israel belonged to God by virtue of creation, but also by virtue of redemption. And so God could say, you are mine. But what about Christians? What about you and me? Most of whom have very little Jewish DNA in our blood. Well, look in the New Testament, the first Peter chapter 2. Pastor Kevin's been preaching through 1 Peter. And uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 is a really important passage. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Peter writes, But you, and who is the you? Well, back in chapter 1, they are those uh, who have experienced the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. They are those who, in verse 3, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believers, Christians, you are a chosen race. And now all of these terms that Peter is going to use are terms borrowed directly from the Old Testament, where they're applied to Israel, the Old Covenant people of God. Every one of these terms, including a chosen race. So Peter says, you born-again Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. By the way, There is no holy nation on planet Earth today. A lot of you might get upset at me for saying this, but America is not a holy nation. We don't have the right to call ourselves that. We are an exceptionally blessed nation for sure. But the modern nation state of Israel, that is not Old Covenant Israel, the modern nation state of Israel is not a holy nation. And I'm not saying that because of what's happening today. I'm on their side. But I just want to be clear that there is no such thing as a holy nation politically today. A holy nation is you. A holy nation is all Christians in Ridgecrest and California, and across the nation, and around the world, and throughout time. We are a holy nation, a people 
for his own possession. Don't forget what we are seeing in Psalm 100, that we belong to God. We are his by creation and redemption. We are a people for his own possession. Why? For worship. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what it means to be born again. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were in utter spiritual darkness. But God, who's rich in mercy, called us by his powerful, effectual calling. He caused us to be born again, to come to life spiritually, and he opened our eyes. And we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shown in has um, shown the light into our hearts to shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the new birth. That's what has happened. He's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Continuing on in verse 10, once you were not a people when we were unsaved, when we were not born again, then we were not the people of God. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Brothers and sisters, that is so important. That means Psalm 100 belongs to us. Psalm 100 does not just belong to the Israelites under the Old Covenant. It did. But the Old Covenant is now obsolete. There's a new covenant. And by virtue of that new covenant, Gentiles, all the nations of the earth are being called to Christ. From every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue, Jesus Christ is building his church. We are the people of God. We are his. We belong to him. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people. Notice what else the author of Psalm 100 says at the end of verse 3. And the sheep of his pasture. Because we belong to the Lord, God cares for us as a shepherd cares for his sheep. And there are so many passages. Psalm 23, the, same, the famous Psalm uh, 23 begins, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And then, Yahweh, in the flesh, Jesus, said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10 and verse 11. So God tends to us. 
cares for us, protects us, leads us, he feeds us because we're his sheep. And before we move on, just think this through and pause for a minute. What we have just been told from Psalm 100 is our identity. This is who we are. We've been told who God is and then who we are in relation to God. And that's the reason to worship who God is and, and who we are. God's our creator, our redeemer. We belong to him as his people and his sheep. And here's what's so glorious about that. That cannot change. Negative circumstances in our lives, what happens in history, our our mood swings, even our sins, our remaining sin as believers, nothing can change our identity as God's people. That's so encouraging to me because all that this world has to offer and all of the ways in which the world would define us and break us down and divide us according to earthly identities. You've heard of identity politics. It's all temporary. It's all carnal. It's all fleshly. But the way in which God describes our identity in Him, it's independent of our circumstances. And it's actually the most important thing about us. Once you're a believer, Your identity as a child of God is the most important thing about you. You you go on being a husband and a wife, father, mother, child, brother, sister, employee, employer, whatever. You, You go on with those relationships and those aspects of your identity. They take on new meaning and new purpose because of Christ. But above and beyond all of those aspects of identity, the most important thing about you is your identity in God. We are hidden with God in Christ. That won't change. It's going to last forever. And that's the reason to worship. That means we never have a reason not to worship. Amen. Thank you. (laughs) Moving on to verse 4. The author of of Psalm 100 tells us about a call to thanksgiving. And there is a sense in which Psalm 100 repeats itself. So there's a call in verses 1 and 2, and then the reason, and then another call to worship, and then the reason. 
But verse 4 more explicitly uh, has as its theme the theme of thanksgiving. So that's why I'm calling it a call to thanksgiving in verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. And these gates were the gates into the Old Testament temple. And the courts were the courtyard of the temple. So basically, the gates, the courts are representative of the place of worship. And the singular place of worship, the unique, extraordinary place of worship under the Old Covenant was the tabernacle and then the temple. What about the New Covenant? What's the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament temple that's referred to in verse 4? And it's quick and easy to say the, the church as in the church building. And so the gates would be our front doors which also serves as our emergency exit. But not so fast. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Actually, before we look in 1 Corinthians, look back in 1 Peter chapter 2, because you probably still have your finger there. 1 Peter 2 Last time we read verses 9 and 10, notice uh, verses 4 and 5, 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. That's Jesus. Verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And what was the temple in the Old Testament called? The house of the Lord. Well, we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. There was a physical temple in the Old Testament. Now there's a spiritual temple in the New Testament. And why is God doing this in and through us? So that we would be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The spiritual sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, by the way. But look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17. This is interesting. 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 16. Do you not know, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, that you, now pause there for a minute. In the King James, that you is translated ye. And no one talks that way anymore, of course. But there's an advantage of uh, of uh, King James Elizabethan English. Um, they actually did made it, make a distinction between the singular you, 
And the plural you, ye, is the plural ye, the plural you. And that's what's going on in the Greek here. Maybe your Bible has a little footnote like my ESV does, has a footnote next to the two, and it says the Greek for you is plural in verses 16 and 17. And so when Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you, he's not talking about individual Christians here. He does address individual Christians in chapter 6 where he talks about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we shouldn't engage in sexual immorality. But here, it is the plural you. You collectively. You as the body of believers. You are God's temple. And that God's temple dwells in you. And then verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, that does not mean if anyone smokes and gives themselves cancer, you're destroying the temple of God. It's not what Paul is saying. He's talking about somebody destroying the church. Then God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And here we are again with the plural you. You are that temple. To the Old Testament ear, those words are amazing. You, the church, the body of Christ, are God's temple. And you are holy. And so that means, once again, that uh, all of these spiritual realities that we're reading about in Psalm 100 apply squarely to us. It means that these activities of worship, shouting to the Lord and making a joyful noise and singing and coming into his presence, Entering into his gates with thanksgiving and praise. Giving thanks to him, blessing his name. They all apply to us. Even more intensively than they did to the rank and file Israelites under the old covenant. Because most of the activity of worship was done by the priests. But remember what we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2? We are a kingdom of priests. And so we are responsible for worshiping ourselves and not depending on another human being to worship in our behalf. Once again, that's why we're not just supposed to passively coast through the process. Thanksgiving is linked with praise. When we are thankful to God, when we realize that all that we have and all that we are is from Him, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. There's nothing that you have that you have not received. When we get that, 
then we will praise him. It flows. People who don't feel like praising the Lord don't realize how much they owe to him, how thankful they should be to him. But we, on the other hand, as the temple of God, we know to give thanks to him and to bless his name, to to say how good and holy and righteous and worthy God is because of what what is revealed about himself. That's what that means. And so God's temple, going back to what we began with there in verse 4, it's not a building but a gathering. And that means that every Sunday is Thanksgiving. I'm glad we have the holiday. Just like I'm glad we celebrate Easter, but, but every uh, Lord's Day worship on the first day of the week is Resurrection Day. And every Sunday, when we gather together with thanksgiving to give thanks to his name, every Sunday is thanksgiving. All right, finally, verse 5, the reason for thanksgiving. The goodness of God. The reason for thanksgiving. Why enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise? Why give thanks to his name, bless his name? For... The Lord is good. The Lord is good. Goodness, kindness, mercy are part and parcel of who God is and how he relates with his creation. All of us, both saved and unsaved. Here's just a snippet of passages from the Psalms. Psalm 23 and verse 6, I quoted from Psalm 23 and verse 1 earlier. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 34 and verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That means experience it. Have a practical knowledge that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 119 and verse 68. This is directed to God himself. You are good and do good. God does good because he is good. Psalm 145 Verses 9 and 17. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Jesus put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He sends his uh, rain and he causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust alike. And then Psalm 145 and verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and kind in all his works, even when life hurts. 
even when it doesn't feel like it. Because you put all of these realities together, the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God, the promise keeping of God, and out pops Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. That doesn't say that all things that happen in our lives are good. What it says is that all things work together for good. Think about the cross. The death of Jesus on the cross was not good in and of itself. There was an innocent man, the promised Messiah, the Son of God, murdered. That's not good in and of itself. And yet, the worst evil that has ever been committed in all of the universe, worse than the fall of Satan and his angels in heaven, worse than Adam and Eve eating of the forbidden fruit, worse than whatever was happening upon planet Earth before God destroyed all human life by a flood in Genesis chapter 6. The worst sin ever committed was the murder of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And yet, and yet, God accomplishes the greatest good. Because Jesus died on the cross, now there is such a thing as the gospel, which means good news. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God who really is. Don't believe the devil's lies that the Lord is not good. And the psalmist goes on to tell us that God's goodness is expressed in his steadfast love. Back to verse 5. For the Lord is good his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love there is, an, is a very important Hebrew word that, meet, that uh, is hased. And uh, if I was of Middle Eastern origin, I'd probably say hased, like it should be properly pronounced. But that word that's translated steadfast love, it's a covenantal love. It's God's love that originates in God himself and therefore does not change. This is the kind of love that we read about in Romans 8. I just quoted to you from Romans 8 and verse 28. But look in Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. This is hased love, steadfast love. So many examples, but this might be the, the, the pinnacle. Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. 
Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His steadfast love endures forever. The steadfast love that's spoken of in the Old Testament was pointing toward the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to fulfill in his person and work what the Old Testament anticipated. And so, this love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord is the love of God that stretches back to eternity in which God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And then it stretches into eternity uh, future. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Once you're in, you're in. It's not because of you. It's because this covenant love springs from God himself. And it goes hand in hand with the grace of God. It is to the praise of the glory of God's grace. It's by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works. It's God's grace that caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's all because of God's steadfast love. And then Psalm 100 goes on in verse 5 to say that God's goodness expressed in his steadfast love means that God is faithful. So the last words, verse 5, and his faithfulness to all generations. A golden chain here. God's goodness, his steadfast love, his faithfulness. Faithfulness means God's trustworthiness. The fact that God always keeps his promises. Exodus 34, verse 6, when God caused his glory to pass before Moses, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The, the language is graphic. It's not that there's a little tiny bit of faithfulness in God. It's not that God barely keeps his word, keeps his promises to us. No, God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23, this is the theme of one of my favorite hymns, Great is Thy Faithfulness. 
And the setting of lamentations, I mean, you, a lamentation is a lament. It, it's Jeremiah the prophet lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. The unleashing of God's judgment upon his ancient covenant people because of their covenant breaking, their sin, their idolatry. And in the midst of that destruction, Jeremiah wrote, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. When life is going swimmingly and when your city, your country, the world are falling apart. Jerry Bridges wrote this. This is the conclusion to Psalm 100, really. Thankfulness to God is a recognition that God, in His goodness and faithfulness, has provided for us and cared for us, both physically and spiritually. It is a recognition that we are totally dependent upon Him, that all we are and have comes from God. And the ultimate expression of that for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Praise be to God for His inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You We thank you for all that you are and all that you have done for us in your mercy and your grace. We know that we've only scratched the surface in your word about the topic of thanksgiving. But what we have heard, Lord, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would take it to heart and our lives would be transformed. Lord, you would help us to be spiritual worshipers that um, we would be, we would act like the temple of the Holy Spirit, the house of God, and that we would worship you in a way that glorifies you. And Lord, we pray for any who may have walked in here unconverted, we, we pray the words of Jesus that when, when he said that whoever worships the Father must worship him in spirit and truth for such the Lord is seeking. The, the Father is seeking such. We pray that today would be the day of salvation, the day of conversion for many, that they would become those who worship the Father in spirit and truth 
beginning now. We pray in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.